0: coffee with a friend this week. We were sitting around reflecting on what time does to our perception of things. If you were like me when you were in your 20s, you were very certain about a lot of things. Um, So much so that maybe you offended some people because in your 20s, you really know what you're talking about and nobody else has any clue of what they're talking about. Everything is black and white. Something happens along the way when you get into your 50s. The things that you were so sure of in your 20s, somehow you're not as certain of anymore in your 50s, or at least that's my experience. Maybe you guys had it right in your 20s, but things which were once so black and white have turned varying shades of gray. The way I once saw things, maybe the way you once saw things or interpreted things, you start to realize in hindsight, with 30-plus years in the rearview mirror, that things weren't necessarily what they seemed. The race I won, the, the job I lost, the girl I loved. All of those things which in those early formative years seemed so important, now they seem so trivial. And conversely, if you've lived long enough, here's something you start to realize. The things that you didn't put so much weight into the things that, you know, you didn't even realize were happening when they were happening, those are the things, when you look back 30 years, that you go, you know, I had no idea, but that had a huge impact in my life. Because time has this way of bringing clarity and crystallizing for us what moments matter and why. This is why I love the Gospel of John. The word gospel, it's an English translation of the Greek word of the Greek word "angelion," It's what we call the first four books in the New Testament. That's what the uh, the first four books of the New Testament in your Bibles. The word "angelion" translates to good news. Why? Because that's what the writers of those four books thought the story they were sharing was, the history they were capturing was. It was good news for all mankind. Here's what we know, historically, because it's important to look at this historically. Matthew was one of Jesus's twelve disciples or students. He walked with Jesus. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew probably wrote his accounting of Jesus's life and ministry relatively early on compared to the other authors, um, probably around 50 AD, give or take 50 years after the birth of Jesus. Mark, who was actually actually a disciple of Peter's, remember Peter? Peter's the one that hid, hid, you know, denied Jesus three times. Mark didn't know Jesus, but he was a disciple, a student of Peter's, and so he wrote the account he had learned from Peter. Mark wrote his gospel right around that same time, so maybe about 20 to 25 years after Jesus had been resurrected. Luke, who was a physician and set out to write an, early account, uh, an orderly account of the life of Jesus, almost from a historical, specifically historical perspective. That's why if you read Luke, his gospel is a little longer and it's filled with details. Luke is where we get almost all of our details about the Christmas story, the manger, Joseph, Mary, the wise men. That's all in Luke. Luke was likely a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Paul writes most of the books after the gospels in the New Testaments. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, which comes right after the four Gospels, that tells the story of what happened right after Jesus uh, ascended. Acts tells the the story of the birth of the church. Crazy book. You should read it. It's really incredible. Well, Luke, who didn't know Jesus, he sets about to write his accounting of the life of Jesus around 60 to 61 A.D., so maybe 30 to 31 years after Jesus' death. Why am I telling you all that? Well, uh, for two reasons. The first is... Unless you really believe these events understand, uh, happened, why would you care? They're just a nice story. But the reality is, these are historical events in nature. They're written by real men who saw real things. And when they saw these things, specifically when they saw the resurrection of Jesus, it changed their lives. Remember, everyone, these were the same guys who were once afraid to come out of the upper room. These were men who had abandoned Jesus at his darkest hour. But something so dramatic, so impactful had happened that now the Gospels tell us they were willing to put their name on the events. They were willing to go out into the streets and proclaim what they had seen. Instead of fearing for their lives and pulling back what they saw, the good news they had to share, suddenly they are willing to live lives boldly proclaiming something that they were once unwilling to even unlock a door for because something happened. And so now that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have been studying John's account of Jesus' birth this Christmas, an account you usually don't tie to Christmas because he doesn't have a lot of the historical details in it. See, John actually was a disciple of Jesus. He had direct knowledge and experience of all the events that Matthew and Mark and Luke had written of. John's actually pretty upfront with why he's writing his gospel as he's wrapping up his account His gospel, he says that he wrote these things, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has an agenda. You're it. Here's the thing about John's gospel. And when when you think about it this way, I think you have to pause and reflect. John writes his gospel somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D., decades after not only Jesus' life, but decades after the other gospel writers had written theirs. It's likely John knew what had been recorded, and so now John, with 50 years of life experience in the rearview mirror since Jesus' death, John in those years has seen the beginning of the church, he's seen all the events recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, he's seen the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, He's seen most, if not all, of the other disciples, and Paul martyred. He suffered for the cause himself. He's been an outcast on the island of Patmos, sent there by the Roman Emperor Nero. It is now John who, with the benefit of 50 years of clarity and crystallization, who tells the story of Jesus' coming in a different way. He begins, he goes, in the beginning. See, 50 years of clarity have told John that what happened with Jesus coming echoes back. It didn't begin actually in a manger in Jerusalem. it began somewhere else quite earlier. John begins his opening poem that's what John one, 1 is it's a, or John 1 is. it's a poem. He begins it with the same opening line that Genesis 1, which by the way is a poem, he begins it with the same opening line that Genesis shares about the telling of our creation story. Moses, who likely recorded that, said, in the beginning. And with that, John lets his audience know, he lets you and I know that something pretty profound is about to happen. And he begins to relate Jesus' birth Not to a single moment in time, but to the dawn of creation and life itself. You see, Moses had written, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, God said, He used words. He spoke creation into being. And those first words were let there be light. And there was light. And that light brought with it structure and purpose to formlessness. And it brought meaning and fullness to emptiness. And it brought illumination to what was once hidden. And as John reflected on that truth, here's what he wrote. In the beginning was the Word, the same Word Moses had written of, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew and Luke, they tell of Jesus' story beginning in a manger as a baby. John says that might be historically accurate, but the clarity of decades has shown me there was something much more significant happening. John's probably somewhere between 80 and 90 years old when he writes it, and so I sense that he feels an urgency to let you know. That baby was the creator of the whole thing Everything, the creator came to his creation. John goes on, picks up a little historical stuff. He goes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's referencing John the Baptist here, which was recorded in in the stories of Matthew and Luke. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John, 50 years of post-Jesus ministry, he reduces Jesus' life and ministry to one word. Jesus was light. In fact, he'd go on, he'd write several churches' letters that are in the New Testament, 1 John, Second John, Third John, and there he famously states that God is love, but prior to that, he starts his letters saying the same thing. God is light. Now, I want you to go with me on a little, a little journey here to, to claim that God is light. Well, that's not a big deal. Uh, what Jesus referred to as the Law and the Prophets, which is what we refer today as, to as the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, in the books of the Law and the Prophets, God had referred to himself as light before Because light in the scriptures is often associated with God Many of you know these verses David. He was Israel's great king. He wrote most of the Psalms, right? David wrote in Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is light In fact, it wasn't just God who was related to the concept of light God's word is The scriptures, his commandments, and the nation of Israel were often spoken of in the Old Testament as light. Let me show you what I mean. The psalmist wrote, Your word, the law and the prophets, your word is a lamp for my feet and it's a light for my path. The writer of Proverbs, another ancient book of wisdom, he writes, For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. God and God's Word are light and life. And it wasn't just God and His Word. It was supposed to be God's people, the nation of Israel. Israel's great prophet Isaiah had said that God was going to use that nation. God was going to bless them to be a blessing in a similar way. Here's what he told them. I will also make you a light, you, you nation of, uh, of Israel. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was Israel's call and purpose. They were a blessed people called to be a blessing, It was the blessing which sat upon them which was to be used as a light to other nations in an ancient world. God had said what he was doing for them, the reason he was blessing them is that if they would obey him, they would be able to to use that blessing to show all of the other nations who were following other gods that because of how Israel was blessed and how they were being a blessing, that that must be their God, must be the God. Now, many of you know the story of Israel that live this way, and instead of being a blessing, they turn their focus inward and onto themselves. They abandoned God, they abandoned his ways for their own. And so a new light begins to be spoken of in the ancient world one which had not yet come but was to come and would be a better everlasting light and not just for Israel but would actually do and be what Israel should have been, a light for all nations. Isaiah looked ahead, this prophet of Israel and his people looked ahead to this coming Messiah, this Savior, and he described his coming this way. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He would go on. He would say to this people, um, the sun will, will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. God is light. His words are light. His commandments are light. His, his, the nation of Israel was to be light and his coming Messiah would be light. You with me on this? Everybody knows about light in the ancient world. Light was a much bigger deal in the ancient world because it was dark a lot, and there was no switch on the wall. And so now Jesus arrives on the scene, but he doesn't show up as a Messiah would be expected to. John actually tells us in the last book of the Bible called Revelation, where God gives him a vision of the final days, that Jesus will return again. He'll return differently. Jesus' next coming, he will come as a king, but the first time, this first arrival, this first coming Jesus doesn't look to be anybody's savior. And so when he starts making claims about himself related to light, to a nation and a people and whose rulers associated light with God and his word and his coming Messiah, well, it doesn't go well. And Jesus is no shrinking violet. He's pretty bold about who he says he is. You know the whole John 3:16 thing, right? It's the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Uh, you can't go to a football game without seeing it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Almost all of you have heard that at one point or another in your lives. But just three sentences later, here's what Jesus said. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, I want you to imagine how that went over with the crowd, a people with a pretty high view of light. This is the verdict. Dude, who do you think you are? Who made you judge? This, get off of your, dude, who, who are you? This is the verdict. You're going to tell me the verdict. You're going to tell me the verdict? Because I know the scriptures in and out. I know what the psalmist wrote. I know what's written in, so- in Proverbs. I know what Isaiah testified about. The light of the world ain't you, it's God, it's his commandments, it's his nation. And you're going to issue a verdict? He actually says this to a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee. He was a religious ruler himself. Imagine when Nicodemus took this back to the boys in the temple. Can you imagine? Guys, you're not going to believe what this guy said to me. That's not the last time. John chapter 8, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 9. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John chapter 12. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus seems fairly insistent to make sure that his audience understand, and it was an audience that didn't want to hear it. In fact, at one point, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, they scream out, you're a liar. No, you're not. They demand, in fact, they demand he prove his claim. They said, well, who's your witnesses? And Jesus goes, well, I'll give you two. I'm one, and my Father who sent me is the other. That didn't go over well either. You see, these are the kinds of things that get a guy crucified. Who, Who do you think you are, Jesus? You're the light of the world? God is the light of the world. It says so right in our scriptures. Who are you? In fact, those writings, those teachings, God's commands which show us how to live, those are the light of the world. Not you. Not a person. Our nation, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. We are, well at least we're supposed to be, the light of the world. You can't be the light of the world. Our nation is the light of the world. Light. It brings structure to the formless and and hope to the empty, and illumination to the lost. And in Jesus' world, claiming to be the light of the, bro- of the world was a bold, almost ridiculous assertion. Heretical by their standards. Because light brings life. It, it shows the way. It, it is the true north. It provides clarity and direction and a way home. Light is associated with the way and with the truth and with life all of which Jesus would claim to be. I think that that is the second most astonishing claim made in the scriptures. I'm going to introduce you to the first. Matthew records it, in the setting is a hillside. Jesus is doing some teaching there. It's a pretty famous teaching. Some of you have heard of it. Uh, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's not speaking to the Romans who are like, you know, the people in charge. He's not speaking to the religious elite who are the people in charge of Israel. He's speaking to a ragtag bunch of early first century followers. They have no political power. They have no economic power. They're under Roman oppression at home, under religious oppression at the temple. They are a people with literally nothing except perhaps now, because of what they've seen in him, a mustard seed of faith. And it's that audience that Jesus gives his most astonishing claim. He looks out to them and he says, this: "You are the light of the world. You. You are the light of the world. Starting now. Starting now, it's not the nation anymore. It's not the scriptures anymore. And in a few short months, it won't be me anymore. You are the light of the world. Through you, the world is going to know who God is and what he's up to in this world. Through you, the Lord will know who my Father is and why I'm here. that's a bold pronouncement when you start believing that you might get crucified too and they did jesus goes on he, he explains what he's saying he says a, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden In the NIV, that's what it says. In the New American Standard translation, it adds a word that is actually in there in the original Greek that the NIV didn't translate. Here's what the New American Standard version says. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That word set there, it's Greek meaning. It's a word used often in the New Testament, and it talks about divine or sovereign decision. In other words, you are like a city that was strategically set or built on a hill, a place where it would be prominent, where people would see it during the day, a place that when illuminated at night, people could see and move towards. Think about the hope of a city in the first century. In the first century, if you were a wanderer or a traveler or a sojourner, when you saw the city set on a hill... That made your heart leap because it was there you would find food and water and community and health care and protection. Cities weren't just random. Cities were strategically placed. Jesus says, that's what you are. And then he goes on, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. When people light a lamp, where do they put it? Anybody have a lamp sitting on your floor at home? At Thanksgiving, we have to move the furniture around to get everybody in, and there's never enough tables for the lamps. And uh, so I've always got these miscellaneous lamps I'm walking around the house with, and, there's not, and so I have nowhere to put them. So sometimes I just put them down and say, well, you know, we need more light, and I turn it on. You know what it does? Nothing. Because it's not elevated. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. He says instead, when they light a lamp, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Everybody in the house is impacted by a well-placed lamp, Here's the point. In the same way that people build a city on a hill, in the same way people don't put a lamp on the ground, but they elevate it so that it can be seen, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see. I'm going to pause here because this is important, that they may see, see, not here, not here. Not hear your megaphone, not read your sandwich board, that they may see something we do, our deeds. We're not the light of the world based on a private decision we've made to to accede to a theological truth. We're not the light of the world merely through our voices or our writings or our teachings. We're the light of the world through deeds which are seen. In other words, I want you to do something, Jesus says, so that people see it. And when they see your good deeds, they glorify, somehow they attribute it back to your Father in heaven. In other words, I I, I think what Jesus is saying is I want you to understand something. I'm leaving. You are now the light of the world. My mission, my story, the gospel, I'm entrusting it to you. Which, while crazy, is not unprecedented. John equates Jesus' is coming to our creation story, and in the creation story, God creates, and what does he do? He hands Adam the garden to work it. God chooses to give Adam his creation, and he trusts him with it, much the same way Jesus gives you his mission, and he trusts you with it. He says, I I want you to do and to live in such a way with a life so full of good deeds that people will not only see them, but I want you to live in such a way that they'll somehow connect the dots and say, oh, 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 oh. I see why he's that way. It's not that he's just a good person. He's a good person because of the God that he follows. I see why she gives and shares and speaks the way she does. It's not that he's just a good guy from a good family. It's not just that, oh, you know, she's from the South. You know, the Southerners, they're so kind and sweet down there. Jesus says, no, 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 I... Uh, you were put in a strategic position in the world, and here's what I need you to do. You're the light of the world now. I need you to go start doing some stuff that will bring glory to God. Not so that they glorify you, and they think, oh, boy, isn't he a great guy? But so you do it, and somehow it it, it brings a connection to me. Do it in a way so they connect the dots. I think this is a life purpose statement for followers of Jesus. You're not a a banker. You're not a dentist. You're the light of the world. There's an element of figure this out, I think. There's an element of strategize, think, think, What can I do? How can I bless people around me in a way so that they don't think I'm so great? And I gotta be honest, most of the time when I'm thinking about doing good deeds, there's something innate in me that goes, won't people think I'm great? Jesus is saying, try to figure out a way where they would connect the dots, not back to you, but but to me. Now, fellow followers of Jesus, most of you have heard this. If I asked you, who of you have heard I'm the light of the world? Almost all of you would raise your hand. Here's the question I would ask. Has there ever been... A moment in your life where you have you've thought let me stop and pause and strategize if I've been placed where I am strategically what can I be doing what good deeds can I be up to today tomorrow next week where people would see it and glorify God a couple of observations first according to, to Jesus you have been strategically placed in your location on purpose with a purpose I know it's hard to believe, but I think it's biblically true to start to believe that God might have placed you in New Jersey. I know you thought that the other side did, but I'm telling you, I think God may have placed you in New Jersey with a purpose other than accumulating enough money to go to Florida. (laughs) And I know you might be thinking, this isn't strategic. I don't even want to be here the weather and the property taxes. Some of you are a student at West Morris or Mendham or Randolph and I know what you're thinking. I've had four of them over the years. Strategic? I hate this school. Every one of my kids told me in their junior year they could not wait to get as far away from this place as possible. And in their freshman year I couldn't get them to go back to their school. I don't want to be here. I have no purpose here. I want to be there. I know I'm here, but I was created for there, so I'm going to work here to get there. I'm just here to get the diploma so I can figure it out and go to college. This job, this neighborhood, this family, this school, it's random. It's just a stop on the way. I'd be given all this. I'm here, you know, so I can get there, to which I think Jesus would say, you're missing it no, you're not. You know, you know this. You know why I know that you know this? Because it's your story. See, I'm standing up here today, not because I ever had some grand plan to be a pastor. Who would want that as their grand plan? (laughs) At least I didn't. But you know what happened is like, I could go back and see the crazy things that happened in my life. my, my, my parents got divorced and there wasn't a lot of money in the house and I got into a, a bunch of fancy schools but we couldn't afford them so I went to a, a state school and if I hadn't gone to the state school I wouldn't have met my wife and I haven't met my wife I wouldn't have met my brother-in-law my brother-in-law he only married into the, my wife's crazy family because of all kinds of things in his life and then so it was my brother-in-law he's the one I met that shared the gospel with me and then it was another guy who offered me a job that allowed me to wind up having some extra time on my hand so I could take this job and I can look in the rearview mirror now and say to you, I want you to understand something. I've been placed here with a purpose. Because I can look back and say, He was placed there with a purpose, and He was placed there with a purpose, and She was placed there with a purpose. They all had a, pur- a, pur- a purpose, a part in the story of God. It wasn't random. Your circumstances aren't random. You think all of that was random? Now, when my brother-in-law was explaining the gospel to me, I don't think he thought, you know, the Lord has strategically placed me in the Roxbury Diner at midnight. <laughs> he was probably going, what am I doing in this crazy family? And why didn't I stay in New Orleans? In fact, I know that's what he was thinking. <laughs> but I look at it and go, that's the providence of God. See, when you get this, it has to get you to begin to think Maybe I'm the light of this place and I don't even like it. Maybe I'm the light on my street. Maybe I'm the light in this cubicle. Maybe I'm the light in my family. Maybe I'm the light in this marriage. Why? Because you are the light of the world and you have been placed strategically like a city on a hill or a lamp in a room. Do you believe that? Because once you start to believe it, you'll start to see things differently. So, go back to my question, one we really di- rarely deal with in the church. Have you ever strategically thought, if this is true, if this ridiculous, outlandish statement of Jesus is true, that I'm the light of the world, no longer the scriptures, no longer the nation of Israel, no longer Jesus himself, I'm the light of the world? Have you ever stopped for a moment and thought to yourself, what could I do? Where could I go? How could I live in such a way? that people would see what I'm doing, the deeds that I'm doing, and they wouldn't glorify me and say I'm great, but somehow it would get connected back to what God is doing. Not what should I believe, but what can I do to draw people's attention to God in heaven? That's the story of Christmas. Would you accept your role as the light of your location? I guess first you have to ask the question, I mean, here's here's a question for you. If I came into your job or your neighborhood or your home and said, tell me about so-and-so, is there going to be a reaction like, oh, man, that guy is the light of the office? Her? She's the light of the school board? There's something about her. She has this faith and just radiates out of her. Something happened to her. Because far too often the answer that we've come up with, right? Far too often if I, if I went to your office and said, especially for, for believers sometimes because we get this message wrong, either we shrink, shrink back and do nothing or we're known for other things, being judgy or preachy, that's not what's going on here. There's something about him, there's something about his faith that, that leads him to do incredible loving things. Because if the gospel, let him, listen to me, if the gospel is good news for you, and that's why all these guys wrote these stories. If the gospel is good news to you, it's got to be good news for everyone. And you're the light of the world. Your spouse, your kids, your cube, your office, your boss, your neighbors. You're the light of the world, strategically placed right where you are. Now, sometimes the encounters that, that you'll bring the light of Christ to are gonna be strategized and planned out. I encourage you to do that this Christmas week. It's the question of, it's the question of Christmas. How can I fulfill my role as light of the world? But oftentimes when you start to see and believe the outlandish claim of Jesus about yourself, you'll start to see chance encounters differently. You'll start to see the guy that you're standing next to on the bus differently. You know, whenever I want a good story, I go to Tony Campolo. Here's one I came across this week. He said, I went down to Haiti to check on some of my students who were working there. I got out of the van. I'm walking across the pavement to go into the Holiday Inn right there in front of Port-au-Prince, and I get intercepted by three girls. I call them girls because the one in the middle was the oldest and she was only 15. And she said to me, you can have me all night long for $10. He said I was stunned and I looked at the one next to her. And I said, well, what about you, do do I get you for $10? And she shook her head, yes. And I said to the third one, what about you? And she nodded, yes. And so I said, you're in luck, I've got $30. I want to have all three of you for the night. I'm up in room 210. You better be up there in a half hour, but not before. Do you understand, not before. He goes, I rushed up, I got in the room, I called down to the concierge desk. I said, I want every Walt Disney video you've got in stock, every one of them. Send them up to room 210. Called down to the restaurant, I said, I want banana splits, I I want to pay you extra, but I want extra ice cream, extra whipped cream, cherries, nuts, I mean, I want them huge. And he laughingly goes, I want four of them. (laughs) The girls came, the videos came, and the banana splits came, and I sat on the edge of my bed, and we had a party. It was about one in the morning when the last of them fell asleep across the bed, and I said to myself, this is the voice in our ear sometimes, right? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. They'll be back on the streets tomorrow selling themselves to dirty men. Nothing's changed. And then another voice inside of me said something different. Except for this. For one night, you let them be children again. For one night, you gave them back your childhood, their childhood. You didn't solve the problem, but you did what you could. People, that's what the Lord asks of us. The kind of concern that gets us to do what we can do. Do you do what you can do? Because you are the light of the world. Some of you go, well, that's a pretty grandiose story. It doesn't have to be. A couple of weeks ago, I was unfamiliar with the whole story. It's just this story played itself out. Somebody in here, I don't know who you are, but somebody in here understood this story, understood the story that they're the light of the world. And and so they decided that they were going to do something that would glorify their Father in heaven. And they didn't call me, and they didn't ask the church to set up a program. They found uh, someone that's on our benevolence team at church and said, is there any families in the church that could use some help this Christmas? And so the Benevolence team shared with them the story of a, of a young woman in our church who's been dealt horrible hand after horrible hand after horrible hand and now finds herself as a single mom because of her situation unable really to work and, and have any money and, uh, and they said well we want to we bless them this Christmas and so I, I know this woman, and I've been meeting w- with her about all of the stuff that she's been burdened and, with and, and had to carry all of the, the, the horror that's come into her life, and she texted me this week, and she goes, you're not going to believe what happened, but you need to understand this about what's going on at your church. First correction, this ain't my church. But you need to understand what's happening here. She said, "I I got called from someone on the Benevolence Committee and said there's, a, there's these people in the church that want to bless you. They don't know you, but they want to bless you. And and she doesn't know who they are, and they don't know who she is. But this week she texted me a picture of her Christmas tree that had nothing under it, because there was nothing to put under it. And, and this is what the tree looks like now. And, and it's really worth worth all of that. And uh, And so every day, her and and one of her kids has been opening a present, a different present every day, and just celebrating what God has done. Do you see how they connected the dots? Look what God is doing. And her son came up to her and said, Mommy, this envelope is for you. It's got, it says, for mom. And she opened it up, and it was an envelope full of $50 bills that exactly equaled her rent payment. It's a funny thing about when God uttered those first words, let there be light. He was actually thinking about you. Let's stand and close this off.